intentional behavior that results in immediate or expected tissue damage to one's own body for purposes not socially or culturally sanctioned, and it's in the absence of suicidal intent, which is either reported by the individual who engaged in the behavior or can be inferred by frequent use of methods that the individual knows or by experiences knows that will not have lethal potential. That was the suggested definition of non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short, put forth by the DSM-5 Proposed NSSI Disorder Workgroup of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury. Might sound a little straightforward, and it would have been great if we had tackled this in Season 1, I know, but there are a lot of complexities as to what constitutes self-injury. For example, does it matter just how much tissue damage is done, or if a clear wound is or is not created? Does it matter if it's external versus internal, or how much pain it causes? And what does immediate tissue damage even mean? To answer these questions and to share about what many clinicians, researchers, and people with lived experience of self-injury tell them about what they think constitutes NSSI and how we should define it, I am joined today from the University of Notre Dame in Indiana by Dr. Brooke Ammerman and from Drake University in Iowa by Dr. Greg Langle. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. You may recall Dr. Brooke Ammerman from Episode 7 in Season 1. She talked about disclosures of self-injury and common reasons people give for choosing to disclose their self-injury. She's an assistant professor at the University of Notre Dame and director of the Affect Suicide Self-Injury and Social Triggers Lab, or ASSIST Lab for short, where she conducts research on non-suicidal and suicidal self-injury. She was the 2020 recipient of the IISSS Rising Star Award, which recognizes an early career researcher, clinician, or advocate whose work demonstrates potential and commitment to make a significant impact on the field of self-injury. Dr. Greg Langle is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at Drake University and is also a licensed psychologist and health service provider in Iowa. He served as secretary on the IISSS Executive Board from 2018 to 2021, and his research focuses on exploring non-suicidal self-injury and other personality-related maladaptive behaviors, as well as the clinical applications of dimensional personality traits. In next month's episode, we'll hear more from him about NSSI disorder as a proposed diagnosis for further study in the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM-5. It's great to have you guys on the podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. First off, why is it important to clearly define and operationalize what we mean by non-suicidal self-injury? Why does it even matter? Yeah, that's a good question. There's a lot of ambiguity and a lack of consensus about what is considered to be non-suicidal self-injury, and this contributes to quite a bit of disagreement and confusion. So there's disagreement and confusion about which behavior should or should not be considered non-suicidal self-injury. And there's also a lot of disagreement and confusion regarding several definitional components about NSSI, such as whether a wound is required or the time frame for how immediate the harm needs to be. It should be seconds, minutes, hours. 
the amount of damage that needs to occur or where the damage is located. Does it need to be to the surface of the body or do internal injuries also count? And so there's several factors like that that are also somewhat ambiguous. And this lack of a consensus definition can have a significant impact across several areas. So it can cause communication issues across disciplines. So it can cause confusion across professionals, the general public, clients, parents, individuals with lived experience. Also, it can impact research standardization and generalizability. A lack of a consensus definition can lead to inaccurate estimates of prevalence rates. Also, just inconsistency of operational definitions can lead to difficulty in just comparing across studies. There's also currently significant variability across measures of non-suicidal self-injury in terms of which behaviors they include, for example. And then clinically, a clear definition of non-suicidal self-injury would help clinicians be more consistent and accurate in their assessment and treatment decisions. It could also help us develop assessment measures and interventions that are more consistent and valid. Thank you, Dr. Lengel. I know you referenced some things I'm going to actually ask about a little bit later in more detail. And we're going to dive into the DSM-5 criteria for the proposed NSSI disorder in next month's episode with you here, Dr. Lengel. But part of that overlaps with today's episode on defining NSSI. So what would you and Dr. Ammerman say is the clearest, most accurate definition of NSSI? And how does this differ from other definitions of the behavior, including the one used by the DSM? So this is a really tough question um, because I don't think that there's necessarily one clear, accurate definition of NSSI, right? If we've learned anything, is really that there's not a clear consensus on all of these components. One of the leading definitions that is put forth by the International Society of the Study of Self-Injury is that the deliberate self-inflicted damage of body tissue without suicidal intent and for purposes that aren't socially or culturally sanctioned. So as one of the leading definitions, there's a few others out there, including the one that's in the DSM-5. We know that there's points of consensus across all of these definitions, so that the act must be intentional or be done to cause harm to oneself, and it must be in the absence of suicidal intent. But beyond that, there's a lot of other pieces that are vague that Dr. Lengel has already kind of highlighted or kind of foreshadowed. And a lot of that comes up when we're looking at the definition. So, for example, the extent of injury that's required for behavior to be NSSI is quite vague. It's unclear about whether a wound is necessary. So in our different definitions of the behavior, we see one definition calling for destructions of one's own body tissue. That was a definition put forth in 2009 by Dr. Matthew Nock. And the definition that I just mentioned from the International Society of Study Self-Injury, it's the phrase damage of body tissue, whereas the DSM-5 actually uses shallow yet painful injuries. While these seem like they're splitting hairs, it makes quite a big difference when we're thinking about how do we actually define a behavior. Similarly, in kind of the DSM-5 definition, it really necessitates self-inflicted damage to the surface of one's body where other conceptualizations or definitions appear more inclusive of internal injuries. So things that aren't necessarily done to the body tissue per se, but maybe ingestion or swallowing of substances, for example. 
And finally, although some damage to the body is required in all of our definitions, as Dr. Langle also foreshadowed, that really that immediacy of damage isn't apparent. Certain behaviors may or may not cause immediate harm. And based on what definition we're using, actually changes whether or not some of those behaviors may be NSSI. The few of us who have been working on this, Dr. Lengo, myself, Dr. Jason Washburn, um, and a few others in a working group, have kind of put forth a, a suggested definition of NSSI, if you will, that tries to combine a lot of these elements and to take away some of that ambiguity. I'll read the definition of kind of what we're suggesting. Again, it's a little long, so I apologize. It's intentional behavior that results in immediate or expected tissue damage to one's own body for purposes not socially or culturally sanctioned, and it's in the absence of suicidal intent, which is either reported by the individual who engaged in the behavior or can be inferred by frequent use of methods that the individual knows or by experiences knows that will not have lethal potential really kind of taking some of those different elements and expanding on them to allow for a little bit more of an inclusive perspective on that definition of what is NSSI. Both of you have mentioned the immediacy of the tissue damage. How much time can transpire before the tissue damage is not considered immediate? Because Dr. Ammerman, you're mentioning maybe foreign body ingestion where it might take some time to cause internal tissue damage, but there's tissue damage nonetheless. And we don't typically in these definitions consider it as NSSI. But yeah, how much time can transpire before it's not considered immediate tissue damage? That's a really good question. And that's another area where there doesn't seem to be universal consensus on that. For example, in the study that we conducted, about three-fourths of our participants noted that harm should occur within minutes or sooner, so seconds or minutes. However, there were some participants who identified that harm that occurs within hours or even days would qualify as immediate. So it's really unclear at this time what would be considered immediate. And just to, to follow up on that, we've actually seen that both from like experts in the field, so clinicians and researchers, but also individuals with lived experience are providing a very similar understanding of what the term kind of immediate or immediate harm is. So really ambiguous across everyone who is involved in understanding and conceptualizing the behavior. Yeah, and sometimes it's unclear too, because sometimes a behavior that we may consider NSSI may not be immediately harmful, but over time can then contribute to a wound, for example. So for example, punching a wall may not cause damage immediately, but accumulate over time after several strikes. And so at what point would we say is the immediate harm NSSI at that point? Uh, It's very ambiguous as far as when the behavior becomes non-suicidal self-injury, as well as in terms of what we consider immediate. It seems also similar to clinical work with not just non-suicidal self-injury, but suicide risk, where people talk about like imminent risk for harm. Well, what is imminent risk? Does that mean right this very moment or a day from now, a month from now, a week from now? What does that mean? And how does that influence the clinical decision-making of that therapist, that psychologist, and how they care for that person and intervening? Do they send in the emergency room or 
Do they meet with them again later in the week? So I think that immediacy, the immediate tissue damage for NSSI and the imminent risk of harm for both NSSI and suicide is pretty arbitrary. Yeah, you bring up a great point, right? That we're relying on clinicians to really make that judgment. And when we're taking even someone with clinical judgment out of the picture. So if we're talking about parents, if we're talking about an individual conceptualizing their own behavior, as researchers and clinicians in the field, we're kind of socialized to that term immediate, right? Whereas that's not going to be the case for everyone. So yeah, it's a, an interesting point that is has so much subjectivity, but really important ramification. You had also mentioned that tissue damage is an issue related to definition. And if there's a clear wound that's created, can you talk a little bit about, I guess, the challenges in defining NSSI related to tissue damage? I think there's a lot of challenges when it comes to that as far as it is a wound necessary for a behavior to be considered non-suicidal self-injury. And then following with that, to what extent is a wound necessary or how how severe does the wound need to be for it to be considered non-suicidal self-injury? It gets to the idea of what matters, the intent of the behavior or the outcome of the behavior, and should that be factored into our definition of self-injury, whether or not we consider it self-injury. As we think about the tissue damage piece and some of our research, we also actually see some of this conflicting should we consider it? How much should we consider it? For example, in our research with experts in the field, so clinicians and researchers, we found that when we ask individuals about a given behavior, like, should this behavior be considered NSSI, there's greater agreement that it should be if there was tissue damage. But if we asked individuals of, do you think that tissue damage should be required, the rate of endorsement of that was a lot lower. There's even some inconsistency about how we conceptualize NSSI behavior as opposed to like classify it. And we saw similar, but actually a little bit different, I guess, results with individuals from lived experience. So only about 45% of individuals with lived experience said that tissue damage was necessary or a wound was necessary for a behavior to be NSSI. But very similar to our experts that when we asked about, have you engaged in these NSSI behaviors? that rates of endorsement for any given behavior, if a wound was involved, were much higher. So without a wound, it may have been 20 to 30%, but with a wound was in that 70 to 80%. So similarly, we're seeing this kind of inconsistent in our conceptualization between theoretically, this is what NSSI is, as opposed to kind of how I actually want to conceptualize any given behavior. I don't like to go into specific methods, but one related question in the context of tissue damage is the harm reduction model, where instead of using a more severe form of NSSI or engaging in a more severe form of NSSI, they might use a rubber band and snap a rubber band on their wrist so that it doesn't cause as much tissue damage. Then people will say, is this NSSI? Does this qualify? It's a hard question. It really, from my perspective anyways, I think depends on A, yes, how we're conceptualizing NSSI, but I think B, what the goal of that behavior is. So really going back to what Dr. Lengel was talking about of, is it the outcome that matters or is it the intention? And so is it done with that same intention? Is it done with the intention of ultimately reducing the behavior or is it just a behavior replacement? So I think we can think about it a little bit different in a a clinical context of it. It's kind of the goal of the treatment is the way I think about it. But Dr. Lengel, I don't know if you have a different perspective. 
No, I would agree with that completely. At the level of the individual clinically, does it matter in many ways to have that definition or is it matter at that point of what's best for helping that client and what does that client need in that moment? Does a definition really matter? In some ways, yes, but other ways, is it worth splitting hairs at that point in time? Because then you have maybe someone who might pinch themselves or dig their nails into the skin that doesn't result in immediate tissue damage, but does result in discomfort or at least some form of pain, but might not cause much tissue damage. But Dr. Ammerman, I, I like that clarification as far as the person's decision to, in the harm reduction focus, use a rubber band to snap. Is it to reduce their NSSI or simply replace it and continue with it? That's going to cause less tissue damage is an interesting way to look at it. And I think clinically, like Dr. Lengel, you're alluding to, is that's probably more important than splitting hairs about, hey, does this classify as NSSI or not? Right. That if we're helping them get to the ultimate goal of recovery, then whether or not it's still technically considered NSSI seems kind of like a moot point, or at least that's how I think about it. (laughs) Others might disagree. Yeah. I often do want to know the intent of switching to a rubber band in these cases, because I guess it could cause tissue damage. I mean, it does. Mild and also depends on how frequent and how hard it is snapped. But yeah, I want to know the function of the behavior. Is this serving to replace it? or to ultimately reduce both frequency, intensity, and potentially cease engaging in the behavior. Does it matter how much pain it causes? You mentioned there's some pain, and we're talking a little bit about some causing a little bit less pain, if a clear wound is created or not. But when it comes to pain, where does that fall within the definition? The study we conducted with the experts would suggest no, that there was some agreement that pain should not be a requirement in the definition. But it's challenging in that if it were included, pain is quite subjective. It also can habituate over time. And so it can be very difficult to include that in a definition. And it's interesting that the DSM-5 definition, or at least the text of the DSM on NSSI disorder, specifically mentions pain as part of the diagnosis. And so Personally, I would probably say that pain should not be a part of the definition, but I know others may disagree with that. We do know that some individuals engage in the behavior without experiencing any pain, and it may not be 100% of the time that they don't experience pain, but given methods, given times, given context or emotional states, that, that experience of pain may be reduced, but that behavior and the intent behind the behavior hasn't changed. So I do think it is kind of a tricky thing of whether or not a behavior is NSSI hinges on that very subjective experience. I don't think I'm a fan of using that as a criterion for NSSI disorder or not NSSI disorder, but calling it NSSI because you're both mentioning as well as our interview with Dr. Julian Koenig earlier on the psychology of self-injury pain that pretty much across the board, individuals who self-injure have a higher threshold for pain and are less sensitive to it. So for many of them, then it might not cause pain. And hard to think about how that can change over time for a given individual. And as Dr. Lingle mentioned, that we know that individuals habituate to the pain and their pain tolerance may increase over time. Of Does that mean later if the same behavior doesn't cause pain that it's no longer NSSI? which doesn't conceptually make a lot of sense to me. That very subjective nature just makes it really tough. I agree. What about the type of tissue damage? We talked about foreign body ingestion. Someone might ingest a substance that could cause an internal tissue damage. 
does that matter in defining NSSI, what type of tissue damage occurs, whether it's external versus internal? This is a really tough one, and I think relates back to everything we've already been talking about, truthfully, is that it really depends how we're defining the behavior. And if we're focused on these more external pieces, so immediate harm or immediate tissue damage, then technically some of those more internal forms of NSSI wouldn't meet that definition. But in thinking back to the function of the behavior, it may serve the exact same. So from my perspective, having a definition that is more encompassing of what the intention of the behavior is and the knowledge of whether or not that may have some form of damage or some form of harm, even if it's not that tissue damage, seems more appropriate when we're conceptualizing NSSI. Yeah, I think with this one, it's really tough to have a concrete answer to it. As Dr. Emerson was alluding to, the immediacy of the damage may play a role in whether or not we consider behavior NSSI, because often some in- internal self-injury behaviors, they may not be as immediate as direct damage to the surface of the body, for example. So that may factor into a definition However, there can be some immediate harm caused by internal self-injury as well. So I don't think it should be excluded for that reason. This is just speaks to some of the challenges that come with and issues and difficulties related to defining NSSI in that we're trying to balance being inclusive of many behaviors to not be too restrictive without being too inclusive to where we kind of lose meaning of the construct. And it's very hard to accomplish that. I don't know if I have the answer to that question. I think it mirrors a lot, even though I know you didn't specifically ask about this, but comes up of whether or not provoking another person or pet to kind of support yourself in injurious behavior, if you will. So provoking someone else for a fight for the intention of receiving some sort of physical injury of whether or not that should be considered NSSI. I kind of view that falling into a very similar category as some of these internal versus external, where we see a pretty 50-50 split of whether or not people conceptualize it as NSSI. Again, yes, very different in the sense that self-induced behavior as opposed to provoked. But if we think about this idea of it's going to result in an expected behavior that will cause pain or harm, that piece of it is actually very similar. And yet there's still a lot of discrepancy and disagreement of how we conceptualize those behaviors. Yeah, that's a tricky one too, because the other person being provoked doesn't have to hurt the person. There's the intent of the person provoking the other to get the injury, but there's no control because the other person, they don't have to cause the injury. Right. And so then it leads like, is simply provoking enough, right? Because with the hope for it to, we could go down a rabbit hole, right? Um, But I think really just brings up this, there is this very unclear middle ground for a handful of behaviors and the question of function versus outcome. I love that you brought up the what we would call self-injury by proxy or NSSI by proxy, because it was actually this topic that sent me down the rabbit hole of the definitional investigation of like the what if, well, what about that? What about this? And what initially can start off being so simple, perhaps, then you start to look at factors like that, like NSSI by proxy, and it brings into question several components of what we consider to be non-suicidal self-injury. Like, for example, how self-inflicted is self-injury does it need to be and that for using or provoking someone else or an animal to 
act as the one inflicting injury is that still self-injury is that no longer self-injury i don't know what the answer is to that the image came up to me i I live in texas now in rodeos like these people getting on these these bulls and getting bucked off that looks so painful as but i wouldn't necessarily i've never thought about that as a form of nssi by proxy but i guess it potentially could be you know referencing animals you know people provoking animals to do that and and they're being provoked to buck the rider off or if we think of different sorts of fighting that's becoming increasingly popular so things like mma fighting or some of the other forms of athletics that involve inherently physical harm or even similar i think to actually dr langel one of the things that got me interested in this is the idea of over exercising is over exercising a form of non-suicidal self-injury and some of the work that we presented at a conference in the past among veterans that that was one of the most highly endorsed forms of NSSI in one of our samples, which is interesting. Those more kind of indirect forms and what do we make of that? Do we conceptualize that as just a general emotion regulation strategy? Do we conceptualize it as part of a different form of pathology? Is it just an adaptive coping strategy taken a little too far? So these things that at one point maybe were adaptive and are moving more into the maladaptive side of, do we really consider that to be non-suicidal self-injury? Athletes pushing through injuries, knowing it hurts. Right. That's the question. I, I get asked that often. I have friends that have asked that as well because they have done that themselves or intentionally, you know, running so hard that it hurts like their legs or shins and they just keep doing it anyway when they shouldn't. I love this conversation. One thing that I know I didn't prep you for is when we published our media guidelines for the responsible reporting and depicting of NSSI, which I may do an episode on in the future. I don't think I ever told you this, Dr. Ammerman, as a co-author on that paper, when I submitted it for listeners, when you submit a paper, oftentimes for a journal, you have to select keywords, either give the journal a list of keywords that people can find when they're doing a search for a research paper or a professional peer-reviewed publication. And some journals give a pre-existing list to choose from. One of those was the term deliberate self-harm. There was no other term that fit the paper that we were submitting, so I selected that. And then one of the reviewers said, we don't use that term. So this is in Europe, in this case. We don't use the term deliberate. And I was, I'm happy not to use that term. I just didn't have another option (laughs) for this paper to be categorized under. And that was the only option that the journal gave to me to select from. So That is an interesting thought because it's in, I believe, many of these definitions that we use, even I think through ISSS, the deliberate destruction of bodily tissue without intent of suicide. So on that note, the debate between NSSI and suicide being on a continuum and not necessarily being able to always infer intent of the behavior. And so some call it a false dichotomy and that their NSSI and suicide are forms of deliberate self-harm or just self-harm, which is often used in a lot of research that doesn't differentiate between the behaviors. I would love to hear your take on this debate, if you feel comfortable sharing and the pros and cons when it comes to our conversation about operationally defining NSSI. I think the, the idea that NSSI and suicidality exist on a continuum theoretically can make a lot of sense that we know that the overlap is actually quite large, that there's a significant number of individuals who do engage in both behaviors. 
and that if someone engages in NSSI, it significantly increases their risk for engaging in suicidal behavior. I'm not sure I fully agree with it being a false dichotomy. I, I can see where NSSI exists on one end of a continuum and on the far end is suicidal behavior. But I think there's a large gray area in between that we know that individuals engage in NSSI for a lot of reasons. And sometimes that can actually be to prevent suicidal behavior. So we know that there's kind of the anti-suicide function of self-injury where an individual may engage in NSSI as a way to cope with their suicidal thoughts or suicidal urges. And that doesn't mean that that behavior then takes on any form of suicidal intent. That being said, we also know it is one of the riskier functions, so to speak, when it comes to NSSI. And those individuals are more likely to have at some point engaged in suicidal behavior. I think it's a very tricky thing, but I, when we're thinking about it from, from a theoretical perspective, I think it's probably where to me, that idea of a continuum makes the most sense. But when we're thinking about behaviors or individuals presenting in front of us and discussing their behaviors, to me, that there's far less of a continuum that we can kind of decide or have them infer whether or not there was suicidal intent. Absolutely, there are some instances in which the individual is unsure if there was suicidal intent in their behavior or we're not able to infer whether that intent was present. But it seems to be the minority of cases, and it seems to rarely occur in isolation. So the distinction maybe isn't quite as important because typically we have the presence of non-suicidal self-injury or suicidal behaviors in addition to these other behaviors that may be a little more ambiguous. So from a classification perspective, it's wondering to what extent that would have on treatment planning and outcomes for an individual. And it seems to be potentially minor, given that it's unlikely to occur in isolation. Yeah, and I think to follow up on that, I think that like many constructs in our world, that NSSI is probably not clearly black and white, that NSSI does likely lie in a continuum or multiple continua in some form. And I think there's just a lot of work that needs to be done to further identify what are those dimensions of non-suicidal self-injury. We can look at a continuum of self-injury many different ways, whether it be from non-suicidal self-injury to suicidal self-injury on a continuum or indirect self-harm to direct self-harm on a continuum. And even within non-suicidal self-injury, like a, a continuum of severity. And so there's a lot of complexity to this behavior. And I think a lot more work needs to be done to identify what are those key dimensions of non-suicidal self-injury. So I don't know if I have a many times, I think I've repeated this several times, this is going to be kind of a theme for this podcast of, I'm not sure at this point in time, I don't have a concrete answer for you. As you're talking and thinking a little bit about often the rationale that I hear about the idea of these behaviors existing on a continuum of being method overlap, of that, well, if someone is engaging in a behavior for non-suicidal intent, and then there's a great likelihood that that behavior can transition into a more lethal behavior. And some of the work that we've done in the past, there's some relationship, but not a strong relationship between kind of that behavioral transition that if I'll just use, for example, if an individual is engaging in self-cutting behavior, that 
not often does that translate to a suicide attempt using a similar method. And I think that's one of when I conceptualize whether or not they're a continuum, an argument against that, because we don't see a, a smooth transition. And I say that in air quotes between the behaviors. Yeah, I agree. I don't think a lot of people consider pinching oneself or snapping a rubber band, if that's considered NSSI, equivalent to a suicide attempt. As we're talking, as I'm, I'm always evolving my thinking related to NSSI, especially based on the research that both of you are citing, where when I was in graduate school, I mentioned this in season one, I think, there wasn't much research on NSSI when I was in grad school, and I wanted to do my dissertation research on it with young people, with adolescents who self-injure, and our IRB kept rejecting it because they equated NSSI it didn't have the term NSSI at the time. We didn't have that term yet, but they equated it to suicide. They're like, these young people are suicidal. We can't, they're experiencing suicidal thoughts and attempts and we can't risk it in the context of our university and our resources. So I had to really argue, was like, no, this is not suicidal, not suicidal. So I was really arguing on one end of the continuum or one end of the pendulum, really, it's how I've seen it. Now we have all this research showing that NSSI is a significant, strong risk factor for attempting suicide. So the pendulum almost is going the other way where we have to make sure we're, we are taking NSSI seriously as a potential risk factor and trying to find that middle ground. The term I like to use is phenomenology or the phenomenological experience, the lived experience of someone where I've heard stories of people being sent to the emergency rooms or treated or handcuffed, you know, at school and taken to the hospital for NSSI that did not cause much tissue damage. And they're either admitted to a psychiatric inpatient program and exposed to behaviors and experiences they had never thought that they would be exposed to or even thought existed and it caused more distress for them and how being treated as needing a higher level of care when they didn't and then being invalidated throughout the process, I think for them, I would doubt that they would be in agreement with NSSI in a continuum with suicide. Absolutely. When we think about any given behavior, and I think that's kind of the important piece as we're assessing risk of a given behavior or how to approach from a treatment standpoint, feel like very different things than thinking about it from honestly more of like, I know I said this before, but a, a theoretical or conceptual perspective. So that bigger picture of, yes, we know that they're risk factors. We know that they're related, but that doesn't mean that they're the same behavior with the same intent and that we should be treating them the same way. I think we've really highlighted this in recent episodes on the podcast with self-injurious behavior, SIB and NSSI. Should those be considered the same? And that's related to self-injurious behavior being a behavior in which many individuals with intellectual and developmental disorders engage. So we did an episode on that. And then a recent one with Dr. Brianna Turner on self-damaging behaviors and the overlap that a lot of these might have, even financial risk-taking or driving you know, risk-taking, as well as its you know, overlap with NSSI and sexual risk-taking as well, and, the, and those overlapping features that, you know, is it NSSI, it's self-harm, it's deliberate, it could be NSSI perhaps, but it's indirect or passive, kind of like Dr. Lengel, you're bringing that out. Yeah, so it's really interesting that we're having this conversation. I think it's probably something we should have done or I should have introduced in season one. Well, I know you've cited some work that you each have done. I think one of those was the paper in the journal Crisis that you published in 2021 on clarifying the definition of non-suicidal self-injury, where you asked 159 clinicians and researchers, including graduate students, their perspectives on the definition of NSSI. 
Could you talk a little bit more freely at this moment about what you found to summarize for us, for our listeners? Sure. So in short, we found some areas of consensus when it comes to the definition of NSSI and what behaviors should be considered NSSI. But we also found that there's quite a bit of disagreements regarding several notable factors relating to NSSI. So which behaviors, different definitional components, and so on. Really highlighting, I think, the discrepancy that we've talked about of how some people conceptualize NSSI, how certain behaviors are viewed. For example, we asked about a lot of different behaviors. I think it was over a hundred different behaviors of whether or not an expert or the participant in our study considered that to be an NSSI behavior. And we found 32 of those behaviors received excellent agreement. So meaning that a very high proportion of individuals believed that this, yep, this should be classified as NSSI. There are some behaviors in the kind of the middle level of agreement. And then on the other end, we actually found that there was 57 different behaviors that had like a close to chance or acceptable agreement. So meaning that in general, there was not a good consensus about whether or not these behaviors should be NSSI, which I think really highlights and encapsulates our discussion to this point, right? Because the, the behaviors varied in how much tissue damage there was, if there would be inferred immediate harm, if it could be inferred, if there would be pain involved, if it was self-inflicted. So all of these things that we've talked about and the discrepancies have been really supported in general in the field's view of how we should define the behavior. That was one of the most interesting parts of it, where I think it was 118 behaviors we had. And of those, as you mentioned, 32 of them had agreement of 90% or above of consensus within the sample that this is considered NSSI. And of that, only seven of those behaviors had unanimous agreement. So out of the 118, seven had unanimous agreement that these are NSSI. What I thought was probably most interesting was the near chance behaviors, how about almost half of the behaviors, 57 out of 118, that's about 48% of the behaviors we had included in our list, had very low consensus on it. And that just kind of speaks to the differing opinions and the lack of consensus we currently have in the field. Included in those behaviors were a mix of all sorts of behaviors that one may consider to be non-suicidal self-injury. So there were some direct self-injury behaviors that were included in there, including things that may be on measures of self-injury, such as burning skin with a hot object, for instance. There are also a lot of indirect self-injurious behaviors or self-harming behaviors, such as maladaptive eating behaviors, overdosing, behaviors that are impacting medical conditions, things of that nature, that there seems to be a disagreement on whether or not this should be considered NSSI. And then also, as we've talked about before, NSSI by proxy, there was about near chance on that as far as agreement is concerned. So the field seems split on those behaviors. And even uh, potentially culturally relevant behaviors, such as getting a piercing or a tattoo for the purposes of self-harm. There was some disagreement on whether or not those should be considered NSSI. And this is particularly important as we're trying to define NSSI for a potential DSM diagnosis, or even just to better develop assessment measures and treatments that if there's this widespread disagreement, we have a lot of work to do to find some consensus at defining this behavior. 
we've been doing some follow-up research, as we've kind of mentioned, with individuals with lived experience. I know you didn't explicitly ask about this, but um, where we're asking a lot of the same questions, um, and we're still preparing this data for peer-reviewed publication. We have little kind of snippets of it that we've kind of been looking at so far. And one of the big questions that's come up among our research team is, we have this potentially consensus or lack of consensus regarding the definition. And then we have the behaviors that individuals actually engage in. So we asked individuals with lived experience of, have you ever engaged in this form of non-suicidal self-injury? So looking at the endorsement across all of these types of behaviors that we asked the experts of like, do you think this is self-injury? There's a lot of behaviors that have, you know, a 15, 20% endorsement rate. Are those things that we should be asking about? Are they things that we should be considering NSSI? At what point is a behavior that is maybe a low base rate behavior still important for us to include in the conceptualization? And we, for example, also asked individuals about other behaviors that we didn't list that they engage in that they conceptualize as NSSI. And had a handful of answers, things that do fall into that indirect self-injury category or things that could potentially be more confused with culturally, culturally relevant discipline or could be viewed as more on that kind of suicidal continuum if at the base of the method. And so in general, we're also seeing with individuals with lived experience that there's a very broad definition of how they're viewing their own behavior. And so I think now we're kind of with this challenge of finding that middle ground of taking the viewpoint from the experts in the field, as well as individuals with lived experience, figuring out where the consensus is across both, and then making a decision point of like, how much agreement is needed for us to move forward with viewing something as self-injury. That's fascinating. Asking individuals with lived experience, one, if they have engaged in a specific method or to list any other ones that are not listed that they have engaged in and also ask them those very behaviors, do they consider them NSSI? Yep, exactly. We similarly asked about some of those definitional elements as well. So um, if immediate harm is required for them to consider a behavior to be NSSI, if they feel like for a behavior to be considered NSSI, if there needs to be immediate and expected pain as a result, if a wound must occur, those more NSSI by proxy behaviors, would they consider them to be NSSI? So getting a lot of the same information from individuals with lived experience so we can hopefully have a more holistic perspective on our definition of the behavior. Even those with low prevalence rates that people endorse having self, you know, used as a form of self-injury, I do think that they're worth exploring and researching if possible. I know I did a presentation not long ago, and afterwards a gentleman had come up to me and had disclosed to me that he participated in BDSM. For him, he realized listening to my presentation that maybe that was a form of NSSI for him. Many people might not. So it's interesting from the perspective of someone with lived experience, what they would categorize it as. Which maybe circles back around, I feel like, the theme that has run throughout of the function of the behavior, right? And maybe it's not the individual behaviors themselves that matter, but rather the intent behind them. I understand that's a lot easier to implement in clinical settings when you can have those one-on-one conversations with an individual and there's still the need to have some sort of consensus around how we're defining the behavior from a research perspective to make sure that we're consistent across research studies. And we don't always have that opportunity to have as in-depth conversation with an individual to really understand the intent of the behavior. 
I would just say there's a lot of work to be done still. I think our study that was published in Crisis kind of highlights that and the continued work that we do with individuals with lived experience is that this is not as easy as a task as it might seem on the surface. And there's still a lot of work to be done and a lot of challenges ahead with moving forward with a more accurate and consensus definition. Wonderful. I know each of you have already answered this on a separate podcast interview. Dr. Lango will release yours the next month and Dr. Ammerman from season one. But based on our conversation today about defining NSSI, what would you recommend to parents? I'm probably going to sound like a broken record throughout today's episode, but I think it's really not as much about what the behavior is that someone is engaging in, but having a conversation with them about what that behavior represents for them, better understanding why they're engaging in the behavior, what the the intent or the goal of the behavior is. And having that understanding is going to go a lot further, not only to validate the individual who is engaging in self-injuries experience, but also your understanding of the behavior and having a better sense of kind of what are the next steps from here. I like that. We sometimes get too distracted by the behavior itself and forget what's underlying it is more important. So for parents to think of that. Whether there's tissue damage or not, or whether there is pain when an individual experiences it, right? Those are the things that don't necessarily influence the fact that someone is potentially struggling and that they're looking for a way to some sort of outlet, whether it be to manage emotions or insert all of the other things that you covered so beautifully on the podcast, but having that conversation to better understand the experience rather than focusing on the actual behavior is, as we've seen, there is no clear definition. And so that seems to be the thing that you can really kind of hone in on. That's a point where the definition seems to not matter in those cases where the priority is validating that experience, being compassionate and empathic to the individual and and getting them the support they need, not trying to split hairs about defining these behaviors. That's great. And what would you guys recommend to other professionals, clinicians, researchers? I think this is a little trickier because in some senses, the definition does matter a little bit more in some of these contexts. From a clinical perspective, not necessarily. I'm guessing that in your future episode with Dr. Lengel, you'll get into a little bit more of why having a disorder or having that as part of the DSM can impact clinical care. So that aside, from a clinical perspective, it seems very similar to how a parent's going to approach and understand the behavior. However, from the researcher perspective, having actually a little bit more clarity and a little bit more detail with regard to a definition does seem important. So being very clear about how you're defining NSSI in your work. So there's not a clear definition, but if we at least know how in in a given study, a behavior is being defined, we typically don't also list the behaviors that we're asking about. So we might mention the measure that we're using that then we can see which specific methods or behaviors we're asking about. And in some of those, there's an other category that individuals may or may not include when we're actually operationalizing in our research, the behavior. So being very clear about all of those components. So when we do try to generalize research, when we try to compare across studies, that we have a much better sense of what we're actually comparing and what we are each researching, honestly, because we're potentially all coming at it with a slightly different lens, which can impact how we're understanding the behaviors, which has downstream impacts for clinical assessment and treatment as well. 
think I would add to that in terms of researchers, just being mindful and aware that over the past 100 plus years of NSSI research, we've used over 30 something terms that refer to behaviors that may or may not be considered NSSI. In the literature, there's different measures include different behaviors as self-injury or NSSI. And so being aware of that when trying to compare across studies and being mindful that we all may not be speaking the same language when it comes to what's out there in the literature and having to maybe do a bit more digging to find out, okay, what questions were being asked, which behaviors were considered NSSI in this case, when we are trying to make those comparisons, because it can be quite a challenge when we we dig through the literature and just how much ambiguity there is and obfuscation there is when it comes to the lack of a consensus and that we're all measuring potentially different things. What would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury? Honestly, I think it's probably very similar advice in the sense that the specific behavior that an individual engages in, whatever form of self-injury that takes for you or for someone else you know, isn't what we're most concerned about. Again, it's the function of that behavior. It's understanding your experience with that behavior or behaviors, knowing that most often it may come in many forms. And so while, yes, we've talked a lot today about these very specific definitional components that when it comes to understanding your experience, and I hope this is the case with all clinicians or individuals you're sharing your experience with, that splitting hairs isn't the thing that's the most important when it comes to understanding, validating, and addressing your self-injurious behavior. For individuals with lived experience, your opinions and your thoughts matter. And that as a field, as we're trying to navigate some of these challenges and come up with a more consensive or clear valid definition, or as we're trying to inform and improve potential criteria for a potential NSSI disorder diagnosis, that individuals with lived experience, whether they're professionals or not professionals in the field, that it's important that their voices be heard and contribute to these conversations because that's going to really help us come up with a valid and more clinically useful conceptualization of NSSI. Well, I appreciate this conversation and I think our listeners will too, how NSSI, I mean, it's just an imperfect definition. What we have, there are a variety of definitions out there, a lot of issues with that. And at the end of the day, probably doesn't matter as much as the individual's experience with a particular behavior and what's underlying it that's more important so i really appreciate those perspectives that you have shared thank you both for being willing to meet and be on the podcast at least twice now and so well dr lingua will have your episode come out next month so again thank you for joining us thank you so much for inviting us We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. If you have found this podcast helpful and would like to give back, please subscribe and please help others find us by giving us a five-star rating, writing a positive review, and or telling your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to interact with us, we welcome you to respond to our questions and polls under each episode in Spotify. 
This podcast is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at DocWesters. For all things self-injury, follow IS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.